And I have the privilege of introducing Violet. I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors at Spark Church. And we have a lot of Sparkers here because we just finished our service. So thank you for planning this directly after my event so that everybody else could uh, come and join. I really appreciate all of that consideration. And I'm grateful that all the Sparkers uh, who were able to stay are still here too. Thank you guys so much. Um, I also just want to say thank you to Nahama and Rabbi Shelley and all of the leaders here who are so committed to climate justice and to seeing things set right on this issue. And, um, and I'm just very grateful to know you and to consider you friends. So thank you for and continuing to lead us in all of this. I want to introduce my friend Violet to you. Violet is in charge of climate resilient communities here in the Bay Area, but she's been a climate activist for over a decade and more than that. Um, it feels like you were born for this, and so you've been doing it for some time. Uh, Violet and I met because we, we went to the UN Climate Conference, and while there, um, because the COP, the climate conference sort of gets a little bit media play. You did a phenomenal interview with local KQED and PBS. And I got to listen in and I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm all the way in Scotland and I could have just stayed in East Palo Alto and found all the resources that I needed <laughs> and sit at her feet. So she was kind enough to respond to an email saying, could I please, please meet you? And could we please learn and dream on what we could do together? Um, my personal journey with climate justice um, maybe was accelerated as a result of fires that hit my hometown of Santa Rosa. However, this is a journey that we've all been on for some time as people who care for creation and care for one another and care also for, um, for continuing to follow our faith traditions. Specifically, I'd like to note that for Spark, our focus on racial justice has accelerated our focus on climate justice. And what Violet and I first were able to talk about those first meetings was how deeply we are concerned about those most marginalized and impacted locally and in the world around us as a result of climate, the climate crisis. 68% of people of color in the United States live within 30 miles of a coal plant. So Reverend Lennox Yearwood of Hip Hop Caucus um, said that when Eric Garner was being choked to death in New York and said, I can't breathe. It was not just that moment that he was saying, I cannot breathe, but an entire lifetime of systemic injustices that had placed his life in air pollution and water pollution that would have caused that asthma that brought him also to that moment. 68% of people of color are living in unfair environmental injustice situations, and that includes our community locally here in East Palo Alto, in San Jose, and portions of San Francisco and beyond. If you care about your global neighbor, if you care about your local neighbor, then this is the place to be tonight. The Global South is disproportionately impacted by our lifestyle and our putting out of fossil fuels. They are putting out the smallest amount of emissions and yet are the most impacted. We're looking at areas and regions in the Sudan and others that are going to be impacted already by, I think, 90% of the communities being impacted by food insecurity and significant drought. So it's time for us to, it's way past time for us to get involved. Violet has been at this work in Samoa um, and also as a lead negotiator in the UN. She's going to share a lot of her story tonight, which we're really excited to hear. She's been at this work for some time, and I think 
honestly, there's part of me that just constantly wants to apologize and say, I'm sorry that I'm so late to the party because she's been doing this work for years and years and years and is hopeful now that I think many, many of us are starting to listen and to come alongside and support and follow her leadership. I'm grateful for the opportunity to sit at your feet tonight. I did not do any justice to your bio. So please go and read her bio and all of the fullness of it is. I can read it to you, but I know you can read it yourself. I just wanted to let you know that the person that we get to hear from tonight is a gift. A gift to us and a gift to this community. And I'm thankful for you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pastor, um, for the kind words, um, the welcoming, um, and especially to all of you who are, the, are here today to uh, spend your Sunday evening to listen to what I have to say. But I'm honored to be here, um, honored to speak to all of you, to share the stories. It's not just my story but also the stories of many communities, um, communities that are disproportionately impacted for many years. As we see, feel, and hear about climate change, some of us here in California just started seeing the impact, the, the new normal, as you may put it, the wildfires that are becoming more frequent, more intense, and but there are many communities around the world, including here in the Bay Area, who have been, who have been impacted for many years. As Pastor Danielle mentioned that I have been doing this work, I've started this work right after college in the late 1990s. Um, and then I moved to the United States um, had a gap because I followed my husband. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom. And then, again, I decided to go back and do what I'm passionate about. So, again, it is an honor to be here to share with you my story and the work that we are doing here in the Bay Area. So, as you may all know that I'm from Samoa. And Samoa is a small island developing state. It's a small country. Um, in the 1990s, there were only 180,000 people living on the island. Um, and growing up in Samoa, the first time I experienced a cyclone or a hurricane was in 1990. I was 15 then. And it was something very new to me. Um, in the beginning, it was so exciting seeing the wind blow, the strong winds, and then I started seeing the trees fall, the birds trying to find refuge, and then you see people's roofs flying, and then you hear on the news who have lost lives, and then it became something else. What surprised me was a year after 1990, we had a second cyclone, which was a Category 4 cyclone very new to my life experience. So I come from a place where people, islanders, we depend on the land, the sea for resources, for food, for livelihoods, we grow, we, you know, like what we are trying to do now, right? You plant your own food. That is something that we grow up doing. 
And then you started seeing all the, all the new environmental impacts of, of climate change. And not only that, with cyclones, the aftermath, that's the worst part. It gets really hot, no more trees. And then you go out to the ocean, you see all the corals broken. And then people start saying there's not enough fish anymore. So the impact of climate change, it's not only the exposure, how you are exposed when things are happening, but also it takes a long time to rebuild, long time to rehabilitate. And for communities and villages where I come from, we didn't have resources to rebuild as fast as so let me say this, compared to American Samoa. So there are two Samoans. One is Western Samoa, where I'm from, an independent state. And then there's the US territory, American Samoa. American Samoa has FEMA. We don't. <laughs> so when a cyclone happens, because it's a small region, it impacts both countries. But American Samoa gets all the resources to rebuild right after a cyclone, where my country, Western Samoa, we wait on New Zealand or Australia or Japan uh, to give uh, support. But the reason why I'm saying my story was because I've seen the devastation. I've lived, I've lived the impact of climate change and every year it got worse. And so right after school, right after college, because it's a small country and Samoa signed and rectified the United Nations Convention on Climate Change and they didn't have anyone to lead that work, I was immediately chosen to do that for the country. So a lot of the work and my experience coming from the work that I did in Samoa, which was to start a whole climate change program for a whole country. It also included building awareness engaging community leaders, faith-based leaders. So it wasn't an easy job because even I myself didn't understand what it was all about. I had to go back and learn about it, came back, and because Samoa doesn't speak English, you know, there's a lot of scientific data analysis behind it. And so it was very difficult to communicate. But at the same time, I guess, the job was a little easier was because people experienced it. Like when I was talking to them about things that were happening, they knew exactly what I was talking about. So that made it easy. So my work in Samoa started with that. Um, a lot of the work that I did was meeting Samoa's obligation to the United Nations. It included Samoa's first greenhouse gas inventory Samoa's first vulnerability and adaptation assessment to climate change, and Samoa's first national communication to the UN. A document, as you see that in the middle, that is a document that I designed, that I helped create, which communicate to the world our vulnerabilities, our contribution to the problem, which was very, very, very small, 0.000 something, and also the impact of climate change. So a lot of the work, but today, as I am standing before you, I had no idea that I was gonna continue this 
my life here in the United States. But when I moved here, of course, um, I was always passionate. And because I've seen the devastation, and when I went back to study climate change here in the Bay Area, I found that very similar, there's a lot of many places, the experience is very similar to where I come from. So the reason why I wanted to share with you tonight, if you look at, if you look at the slides, we have, as Pastor Danielle mentioned, communities that are disproportionately impacted, impacted by climate change. But the vulnerability, the vulnerability of these communities, not only the exposure, exposure to heat waves, exposure to wildfire, but their vulnerability stems from their ability, their ability and the existing adaptive capacity to respond. So as you can see here in the Bay Area, some of you may see you have your neighborhoods, maybe most of you live in the right side. But then on the left, this is where I work. Communities like East Palo Alto, Bowhaven of Menlo Park, No Fair Oaks in San Mateo County. These communities existed in your backyard. And these are the communities that are vulnerable. And this is where you find people that are suffering, their livelihoods are being impacted, their healths are being impacted by climate change. Again, looking at our communities, this is where climate resilient communities work um, in Palo Alto, East Palo Alto, and um, Bowhaven. And as you can see, um, the disparities, you look at housing burdens, you look at income, you look at education, you look at health disparities. Because of those existing, existing issues, it makes it so hard for communities to be able to keep up with climate change or even try to adapt to the changes that are coming. The next slide shows, again, an example. This is a community in No Fair Oaks. And in No Fair Oaks, a community that it's majority are Latinx population. Um, it's an unincorporated city. Canopy, it's very low, which means there's not many trees. And, if, and they are highly vulnerable to heat waves. And if you look at um, this slide, it shows that the area closest to Afriton, where they have rich canopies and a lot of trees, it's a little bit cooler compared to the part of No Fair Oaks that are closest to Redwood City. So there are two things that I wanna, two message that I wanna share is that one, trees do help with impacts of climate change to reduce the impact of heat waves. And second, communities that have more trees are still ahead, are still able to withstand the heat waves just like a couple of days ago, right? compared to the community. And what other, the other thing is as well, many of the housing, housings, houses in No Fair Oaks don't have cooling systems. And on top of that, they don't really have cooling centers, places where people can go to cool off. So there's all these layer of different issues that makes these 
people or these communities more vulnerable compared to others. Again, going back to that tree canopy coverage, as you can also see here, if you compare um, Palo Alto, also some parts of Menlo Park, and also to East Palo Alto, the least, the community or the city that is more vulnerable to heat waves is East Palo Alto compare. So going back to the work that I do, um, it's all about serving these communities. And that's why um, I founded Climate Resilient Communities. Um, it's a new organization. I started off under ACTERRA since 2016, building up the programs. And then in 2020, um, in the midst of COVID, I've decided to transition out because there was more need for us to work directly with communities, to work directly with communities to address these issues. And on top of that also, uh, the COVID at the same time. So Climate Resilient Communities was then um, established and we have three core programs. One is community-based adaptation program, a program where we work directly with community leaders to develop and to work with them to develop and prioritize adaptation strategies for the communities on the ground. Two, through our Resilient Home Program, this is where we work directly with households. Now I mentioned households, uh, households where families who don't have cooling systems, families who don't have heating during winter, um, families who, um, you know, pay a large amount of money on PG&E. We help them access free solar programs. So this is the program where we help those families. And then the climate action education is for everyone. We work with community leaders, we work with the youth, and we also work with cities, um, even other organizations to build their capacity um, and also buy in to increase and accelerate adaptation work in these communities. So this is an example of our resilient home program. This is one of the homeowners that benefit. When I met her, she just lost her husband and she was um, in a lot of fear because she had two teenagers still in school at the time. She owned a home and she, lived, she was living off of fixed income and she couldn't fix a lot of things in her house. So through our program, we helped her to access not only a lot of home repair in her home, including a new flooring, um, new windows, but we also help her to access free solar through our partnership with Grid Alternatives. Um, through that program, I've seen how the change in her um, because we were able to support her and she was able to save money from her PG&E bill. So this is an example and we work in partnership. Our work is in partnership with Habitat for Humanity, uh, Rebuilding Together, um, El Concilio of San Mateo. I can also mention um, Grid Alternatives who provide the, the, the free solar. We also work with Canopy who plant trees. So it's all in partnership that we brought that a lot of those services to her. This is another example 
you know, how we do this work with our resilient home. Many times there are programs, there, there is money, as you may know, a lot of money have been pledged to um, put in climate change and mitigation and electric vehicles, there's electrification, but many times a lot of those programs and those funds doesn't trickle down to the people who needs it. And that's where there is a lot, that's where uh, we come in as well, because in the community, we are like uh, case managers. We help families access the service from the start till the end of the project. So recently through this work with Peninsula Kin Energy, with their home, uh, home repair program, we've helped some families to access funding to install uh, furnaces in their home, electrify um, some ovens in their home, and also cooling systems. But it is more than most of the time when these programs are developed, you know, you go in with a fund, with a program where we're gonna electrify your furnace. That's the program, that's the goal. But then you find that most of the homes we work in have more than that. They need more. They need more resources. As you can see on the screen, you know, one family, this is an example of a family in East Palo Alto who got a whole lot of things through our program. But we went in for only one thing to, to install. So there's a lot of needs. And that's why I'm saying a lot of families are, you know, need more than what sometimes what we provide, even if there's funding coming down from the state or from the federal government. Our community-based adaptation, this is very important to mention because another thing that we found during the start of our work, when I started the work in East Palo and started talking to community leaders, many, many times they said, but Violet, we don't know who to connect with to continue the work, or we don't know where to get the information about climate change and sea level rise. How can we organize? Most of the time, that's not does not exist. So what we did under this program, we created climate change community teams in, in these communities. So we have a climate change community team in East Palo Alto. We have one in No Fair Oaks. And recently this year, we've um, launched the climate change community uh, team in Bowhaven. And now in these communities, the communities are being part of the conversation they are working with CRC and the cities and, and the counties and through the community teams, the community voices are being included. The community voices are being heard. They are at the table because of the climate change community teams. And not only we created an infrastructure, but we also built capacity. We've engaged them in the conversations. Some of us, many of us here, I may say, You've always been interested in climate change and you know more. I'm sure we all know the same stuff, but a lot of the time you find communities, you find community leaders um, in these communities, they don't have that kind of information. When I was um, last Friday, I went to Sunnyvale, tried to build similar work there in, with the Pacific Island communities. Many of them did not 
have the knowledge that we have. So there's a lot of work that we need to do there to build that capacity. But that's what this team is all about. And because we've built um, their capacity, they are now being able to design, prioritize adaptation. For example, in East Palo Alto, a community that's highly vulnerable to sea level rise. East Palo Alto is one of the most vulnerable communities to sea level rise in San Mateo County. And on top of that, they are also vulnerable to heat waves. As you can see, um, this was a study that was done in 2019 with the County of San Mateo, is that evidently there will be an increase of heat days in East Palo Alto. And because that is the projection, one of the concerns is that in East Palo Alto, we don't have cooling, we don't have places where people can go and and get cooled or places where people can find refuge. We only have the YMCA, right? One swimming pool there. And most of the time, it's a lot of people from outside of East Palo Alto that uses the YMCA. It will be, don't be surprised, no one in the surrounding neighborhood go to the YMCA. It's usually people coming from outside the city. Um, Ivan may know this <laughs> too. So we did a survey to understand the team, the team, the climate change community team took upon them. Let's do a survey in 2019 to understand the need or to understand the level of concern in the community around climate change. And so we did a survey in 2019. As you can see there, it maps out um, the the, um, our project and our survey site, and we worked with the youth to conduct the survey. With the survey, we collected three, more than 350 uh, residents fill out the survey. And what we have learned is that people are concerned about climate change, together with housing, together with gentrification. The other thing that we also learned from the survey was that because we were going out to the community, we wanted to use the opportunity to provide information about climate change and sea level rise. And when we did that, we saw a change in the level of concern. So this tells us that, you know, when people start to understand the issue and how it impacted and how to connect the dots, then the concerns changes. They, they become more aware and more concerned as you can see um, on the slide to the right where the percentage of concern went up after receiving information. So here we concluded that it's very important to provide the right information um, and also with intervention, people will change behaviors. Another um, outcome or an outcome of that survey what, that we did was that when asked residents of East Palo Alto, what kind of programming or what do you think your city should do to help you as a resident of East Palo Alto to adapt to climate change? It was very clear and evident that most residents want more education, want more information around the issue. As one lady, I remember back in 2016 when I was surveying for my uh, school project, I asked her, you know, are you concerned about climate change? And she said, oh, Violet, how can I be concerned about something that I don't know about? Um, and that was very clear to me what the need of. And so many times, it's very simple things like, you know, 
awareness, education, and that's why a lot of our programming, CRC's programming, is around education. And it's not just, you know, we're not creating curriculums, we're not, because there's a whole lot of that has already been done. We're not reinventing the wheel. All we're doing most of the time is providing hands-on experience to our community and our youth. We're bringing people together, like partnerships, like we're bringing in, uh, for example, um, a program that we did a couple of weeks ago to serve 60 students from Bowhaven and East Pauwato. We brought in environmental volunteers, um, grassroots ecology, um, San Mateo County, also um, Joint Power Authority to build a experience for the kids to understand sea level rise and adaptation. So a lot of it, it's hands-on. Because this is something that our kids in East Palo Alto and Valhaven don't have. They don't go on field trips, they don't go camping, and that's the kind of education that they, they told us, actually. I did a focus group and I told them, okay, I'm building a youth program, tell me what you want me to do to give you the kind of experience and education. Violet, we want to go camping, we want to go on field trips. We also want opportunities to do internships so that we can also earn some income to help our families. So this is the kind of programming that they want. And that is something that CRC um, is doing right now to serve our youth. Another example um, from the community team that I mentioned that was built in 2019, East Palo Alto is highly vulnerable to flooding. And flooding was one of the key climate impacts that we spend a lot of time uh, discussing and finding solutions. One of the key things that the community team, and also during our community engagement during the project, we found that most families and residents also want kind of adaptation strategies that they can't be part of that they can participate in. And so one of the things that we prioritized was rain garden, rain garden that you know families can grow their own food, and also a water cistern system, a system that, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, let me just. Thank you. Um, rain garden and water cistern system where it will catch the water, um, slow down the water, it will help with flooding. At the same time, the water cistern system can store the water and can help during water, you know, during droughts or the rain garden where they can grow food and address food security issues. This was the project that the community of East Palo Alto wanted to see. And we even built a demonstration during that time in 2019 because communities are tired of projects where people just go in, collect information, leave, and they don't see anything happening. So we did a demonstration then in 2019. Following that, CRC and other community organizations went out and seek funding to pilot a project like this for our community. And recently this year, we got approved a funding from Coastal Conservancy, almost a million dollars to pilot 25 rain gardens and water cistern systems in East Palo Alto. And this is a pilot, which means if the pilot is successful, we can access more funding to build more of these kind of projects. So this is a success story because 
it was a project that was designed and community led. And now we'll be able to pilot and this year 25 families will be able to benefit from a system. So this is how um, we are building resilience on the ground with this project. I also wanted to share with you another project that Climate City Communities is doing right now. As you may remember this time back in 2020 when the sky was orange, right? Of course, um, wildfire and smoke. Um, we did some preliminary like discussions with communities that we serve. What did you do on this day? Um, did you know what to do to protect yourself? Many times they didn't know what to do. They were out trying to figure out why the sky is orange. They knew there were wildfire. They were unprotected. They didn't know that wildfire and smoke can actually harm your health if you're not wearing an N95 and you're taking in the, you know, all that particles from the wildfire. So they were exposed. They were vulnerable. Because of this, and also the frequency and the intensity, and the intensity of wildfires, um, CRC um, last year joined forces with uh, Stanford University and El Concilio of San Mateo to, um, you know, to do a project where we can actually work with households to understand how they respond to wildfires and smoke and also put in place technology that they can help, that can help those families. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's building understanding, it's to help us understand, but at the same time, we'll be able to collect enough data and information um, to help develop programs to address the impact of wildfire smoke. So again, this is a new project, it's called Our Communities, Our Bay, and we're piloting it, we're, we're working in four cities, East Palo Alto, Belhaven of Menlo Park, No Fair Oaks, and Redwood City. And we are gonna work with 420 households for four years. So we're gonna engage 420 households for four years. So if a wildfire occurs from the, you know today till the next three years, um, we will be able to communicate with these families and see how they react, see how they respond. And at the same time, we are using the opportunity to put in place um, air pepper sensors, air purifiers in the home, um, all the stuff that you see up there. And it's a four-year uh, through four-year project. So again, going back to the communities that we serve, this is an air pepper sensor. It collects the data from your indoor home. Because what we found too, that the outdoor air, sometimes, most of the times, it's better than the indoor air. So we, that's why we engaged with the air pepper sensor to collect the data. And you can see, before we started the pilot project, you can see that there's not a lot of air pepper sensors in East Palo Alto, Belhaven, or No Fair Oaks. Before Christmas, we started our pilot and we implemented 27 uh, air paper sensors. Well, that was part of our pilot to test the design of the project. So now we're starting to see that we have this technology to collect the data from, from these communities. And exactly what we found was that 
as you can see, the air pressure sensor collected the indoor data, and then we also have sensors outside that collected, and we compare that most of the, the homes, um, the air, the air, the indoor air quality is worse than outdoor air quality. So now we're starting to have conversations with these homeowners, like what can they do to improve that? So that's the kind of like the whole purpose of this project. And then lastly, I also wanted to share with you another new pilot project that we're doing in Santa Clara County. And here we've engaged, it's called Building Resilience Against Climate Effects. And this is a project funded by CDC um, and it's managed by Santa Clara County Department of Health. CRC is a consultant there and they brought us on board so that we can start connecting with the vulnerable communities. So what we did is we already have established partnerships with five other new organizations. So we have an organization working in Gilroy. Um, we have one in Milpitas working with the Asian community. We also are now working with a church in Sunnyvale that they serve Pacific Islanders. Um, but the whole purpose of this project is to address, um, to start building capacity and understanding around the impacts of, um, you know, heat waves and air pollutions to, um, you know, to the vulnerable populations. And you can see here, these are all the vulnerable populations that we're going to address under this project. Young children, older adults, low-income families, outdoor workers, unhoused, the list goes on. And as you can see um, with this data from the county, that in Gilroy alone, you can see the increase with emissions and also the projections, there will be an increase of heat days from four. Regularly, they get four a year. In projected by 2050, it's gonna go up to 24. Um, projected by 2100, it's gonna be 2143. Um, so there will be more heat days, um, heat waves, and who is vulnerable? I was, uh, two weeks ago, I was in Gilroy doing a, a focus group and a whole lot of people were in the room and we were talking about heat waves. And when we asked them if any of them had air conditions or cooling systems in their home, only one person put up a hand and said, we have air condition. We asked if they know what to do if a heat wave happens, do they know where to go? None of them, not even one person. Only one, one mother who says she spends a lot of her time in the mall when there's a heat wave because it's cooler there. But in the homes, they don't really have anything to address heat waves. So that's the ability to respond. That's where CRC and the work that we do is to really help um, people. You know, people is the center of our work because human lives matter and uh, not only humans too, we know that animals, you know, our plants, they're all impacted by climate change. But, you know, this world, you know, there's a lot of vulnerable communities. So I want to share this more like, this is like the model that we work with um, to build resilience. It's not just, you know, a city-wide effort. We work at many levels 
individual level and a lot of the time it's building uh, your understanding or leadership or advocacy to take lead or to create or participate. We also work at the household level with our resilient home because we know that many families are under-resourced. Many families that we've worked with in the past are elderly homeowners who lived off of fixed income. So they don't have income to you know, put in place uh, a cooling system. And many times last winter, uh, last Christmas, I worked with um, Bauhaven Action to distribute heaters for elderly um, residents in Bauhaven of Menlo Park. These are the, the, the most vulnerable uh, communities of vulnerable people. And then at the community level, uh, we're working at the community level through our climate change community teams because those teams are comprised of community leaders, uh, city, city staff, faith-based leaders, um, other community-based organizations. That's how we built that community leadership. And then we are also engaged um, in around the Bay. Um, I myself, I'm involved with, um, I'm on the advisory board of um, PCDC or even a part, I manage the program manager for the Bay Can Network, which is a network of Bay Area, um, you know, organizations, counties that are addressing adaptation to climate change. So we're also making some changes and influence or being part of the whole Bay Area because the truth is with climate change and sea level rise, not one country or one community or one city can do anything. We need each other. We, yeah, we have to, it has to be a collaboration. It has to be regional because if you look at sea level rise, for example, if Palo Alto build their seawall, where do you think the water will go to next? It's gonna to go to East Palo Alto. And if East Palo Alto doesn't have a seawall, then that community will be more vulnerable. Already more than 60% of the city is under FEMA flood zone. So that makes them highly vulnerable. So that's why when we say adapting to climate change, we all have to work together to address these issues. Um, and then my last slide um, before I welcome uh, Juanita on to, to speak to us. This is my motto. This is what I always think about when I'm doing my work. I believe, I believe in community-led solutions because if you are living in an area that are vulnerable, it is you, you are the expert. You know how things work on, in your community and you should have a say to what needs to be built to protect your families, your neighbors and your city. I also believe that community have greater capacity to organize. Through the climate change community teams, it's been an amazing, uh, amazing journey because you see how community leaders come alive, want to take on the, the work. Um, just like I saw in Gilroy, that one day focus group, five mothers wanted to be community leaders to start working on heat waves and, and air pollution in their homes and in their families. So the, the capacity, and you can get a lot more done through community. The other one is their capacity to learn. And then stronger partnerships. Partnerships, that's why the model or the CRC or climate resilient communities is successful. 
It's not just me and my staff. It's a whole lot of other community-based organizations that work with us. Um, you know, with you know, home repairs. It's Habitat for Humanity who always answer a call when I call that. Oh, I have a, a, a homeowner who needs a new window, um, and, and she cannot afford it. It's um, El Concilio of San Mateo that I would call if uh, a homeowner, an elderly homeowner, who called me violent. My carpet is. You know, it's too old, I might sleep one day, can you help? And they will go in right away and replace the carpet with flooring. It's those partnerships, and even in the community itself, it's the partners, the community leaders who have the same, who believe in the same work and understand the same, um, you know, that working together will do a lot more, elevate the impact. So with that, I would now want to invite Juanita Croft. Um, Juanita and I just started working when we established the, um, the climate change community team in Belhaven and the work that we're doing there to address climate change, also environmental justice and, and the safety element work that CRC is doing in, in Belhaven. And I think what Juanita as a leader, I admire so much. She's already doing a lot of work there, but being part of the climate change community team and her leadership makes my work a lot easier and a little lighter. And so um, without further ado, Juanita, please do you want to share a little bit about the work? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Juanita Croft, and I have lived in uh, the Bellhaven neighborhood for over 60 years. Um, so I grew up there, went to school in, uh, at Bellhaven Elementary and also um, the schools in East Palo Alto. So I, I actually graduated from Ravenswood High School and I also attended uh, Nairobi College, which was an independent uh, black college in East Palo Alto in the, uh, in the 70s. I'm a, a, a tech teacher by trade. Um, I've taught at Foothill College and I'm still teaching there as well. And when I retired uh, and I came back to my community, I wanted to uh, focus on, on uh, bringing resources to the community as much as possible. So uh, one of the things I was able to do or participate with others in is developing actually a nonprofit in Bell Haven. Okay? East Palo Alto. East Palo Alto had tons of nonprofits, and I've worked with many of them in East Palo Alto, but Bell Haven did not have uh, a nonprofit. So we formed a group uh, back um, around the same time that the city decided to do a visioning process. <clears throat> and so um, we um, worked with the city, and Facebook was also coming in at the same time, so that was bringing about a major change in our neighborhood. Um, and so uh, residents were, um, were excited to, um, to find out what the impact would be of that uh, because at the same time, the redevelopment funds that had been um, uh, provided to the city for, on Bell Haven's behalf, um, also uh, that particular program ended. 
So uh, one of the things that uh, for me has been important is getting uh, communities outside of Bellhaven to understand what we have as a challenge because most people know about East Palo Alto and um, even within Bellhaven, most people don't know that Bellhaven was a part of East Palo Alto uh, back in the, uh, uh, up until the 50s. And so um, we were annexed by the city of Menlo Park in uh, 1949. So that meant up until that period of time, we were part of the unincorporated area of East Palo Alto. Well, redlining had started back in the 30s. And so um, the, the county and the, and the cities um, had already established that as a practice in terms of what they were going to be doing. So my family moved here moved to uh, Bellhaven in uh, 1955. And at that time, they were a part of a migration of African-Americans coming out of San Francisco. Oops, sorry. Um, and so at that time, uh, redlining and blockbusting was going on at the same time. So when we moved in, there were a lot of white families and Japanese families mainly already in Bellhaven at the time. But as more African Americans moved in from San Francisco and, and that area, uh, blockbusting, which meant that white people were moving out as quickly as possible, um, occurred. So over a several, you know, a decade or so, um, um, more African Americans came, and Bellhaven became predominantly um, a black uh, neighborhood. Okay. Uh, we had the freeway which also came in at the same time, okay? Uh, the highway went from a highway to a freeway. Um, also at the same time, light industry was being placed around us as we were coming in. So the places where Ray Kim and Facebook exist now, that area before was just floodplain, okay? But then they started moving in these light industries around us. And the Dumbarton Bridge went in around 1937. So again, that's another route. So Bellhaven is a community that is segregated, I'll put it segregated in this term, um, because we are surrounded by the Bayfront Expressway, Willow Road, the Bayshore Freeway, um, and essentially Bayfront runs into to Marsh Road. Okay, which is just a short hop to the 101. So we're completely surrounded by traffic. And we have been that way for, for several decades. I know when my children were small, it was already traffic issues uh, in my community. But it also creates pollution that is constant in our neighborhood, okay? So if you add the situation where most of the housing there is still from the mid-40s, right? Uh, and people can't afford to, you know, upgrade the home and all of that. Um, uh, we, have, we have a lot of issues of pollution and asthma and hay fever and all of the uh, um, conditions that people get from being in uh, an area of poor quality. We also find out, and this is, uh, that we were also surrounded by toxic 
substances. Um, that, that our community, literally, there's spots all around us. And people don't realize how close we are to this toxic um, waste materials and so forth. Um, and so because no data has ever really been gathered about our community, we can't prove that these things exist, right? We know that they exist, but we can't prove it because no one has been gathering data, okay? And so, um, as Violet talked about the trees, when I first, when we first moved to Bellhaven, there were lots of trees, lots of trees just everywhere. But if you look at the map, it was a surprise to me too, when I looked at the map and you compare our side of 101 to the west side of 101, is a dramatic difference in terms of the number of trees that exist, okay? It's like somebody just came in and wiped out all of the trees we have. You have to, okay, excuse me. Um, and so we have that. So having this opportunity to work, to work with Violet has been great for Bellhaven because this is our first real um, um, activity that allows us to engage in conversation about our environment. And so one of the things, uh, we came in to work on the housing element um, and the environmental justice and safety elements for the city of Menlo Park. And this is the first time we have been able to engage in this conversation, even though this is a process that takes place every eight years, okay? This was the first time we have had a chance to have a voice. Now it worked because of organizations like mine that people have come to trust. And so uh, we were able to pull together people on our mailing list and, and all of that to get them to come to the focus group. And because I'm an educator, my perspective was to teach as part of the focus group and then show them what the conversation was about and what it was about for them specifically in the neighborhood, the things that we had in common, okay? What we remembered from our past, what we remember in terms of the things that we've had to deal with over the, we're talking about six decades, 60 years of of being in the community. Um, and so as I worked with, as I spoke with them, everybody was like, uh-huh. I got a lot of affirmations as I talked about even what I remembered back in the day. And um, the other part of it was that we were also able to focus on environmental justice. And when we talked about uh, what the state now has as statutory requirements for environmental justice, we found that it addressed the things that the community was most focused on, okay? That the issues that are brought up by the state right now are the things that can help make a difference in our community because it, people have to talk about redlining. They have to talk about the legacy of discrimination they have to talk about it. And right now, we have a challenge in the city of Menlo Park because they really don't want to talk about it, okay? So even as we're dealing with the, the housing element, which is to finish up very soon, but trying to convince the people of the city of Menlo Park that 
they can't place everything negative in our district, okay, so that they can still continue to have their status quo. Okay, really, right? They want their status quo at the, but willing to sacrifice our existence to accomplish that. So one of the things that I usually recommend, because as we found out through the focus group, the community was very interested. They had lots of opinions, and I always tell people, in Bellhaven, we always have lots of opinion, but just not the venue to share it, right? Um, and so as we talked and we got very positive feedback from the activities that we did for the focus group, they felt like they were, they were more informed after our discussion around uh, environmental justice and, and safety issues. Um, and so the community right now is engaged. They want to participate. And what I'm asking people in communities like yours is to help us gather the data. We need to find ways to gather the data that we need to prove the point that discrimination and redlining is a legacy that still hurts our community and that until we start gathering data to actually show one way or the other, okay, is it true or not true, um, until we get that data, there's no real discussion, right? We can't really have a discussion if we can't say for sure that this is really what is happening to us, okay? Even though we know that our health has suffered, people suffer from asthma, as I said, um, Life, life expectancy in our community is at least 10 to 15 years less, right? Um, so we need the data, and that would be one thing that I know that we could use some help on, is finding where we can get the data. How we, you know, we're doing surveys, which has been great, but we need more data. And so that's something that will help us a lot in terms of figuring out even our mitigations right, hazard mitigations, things like that, we need more data. Um, we're looking at another grant and I was talking with a group and I said, well, okay, so Facebook has done a lot of mitigation as they put in their buildings. They raised them up above sea level and all of that. And I posed to someone at a San Francisco State who teaches this stuff, I said, so what an impact would that have on where the water goes? Right? Because our community is below sea level. So the tendency is going to be for whatever mitigation they did, it's going to have a negative impact on us. So it's things like that that uh, could be helpful for you know, someone to take a look at, look at the data, look at um, um, uh, any kind of information around climate change or whatever that's specific to our community. Our little corner, our little triangle, we call it. It's a, it's a, Bellhaven is a, literally a triangle. And so um, having that kind of help would be, would be useful. Uh, the community is, does prefer their trusted messengers, and they even have their trusted places to go. So we did find out that they like the Bellhaven Library. Our community center is torn down right now, so, so we don't have our usual place, but... Um, the library is someplace that they feel comfortable. 
and working with the community-based organization, organizations as well. Um, so having allies who could help us with the data gathering and information uh, research and things like that would be quite helpful. Okay, that's my, my part. Thank you. Hi. I think you have allies here, um, both of you. I'm Nahama, and thank you everybody for coming. I, you know, many people in this room have many months and years of working on issues of social justice, but there's nowhere, we're nowhere near where you're at, and we, the whole purpose of us gathering was to be able to be allies and be able to help. So let's just conclude um, tonight before we do a little bit outside schmooze, we call it. Um, we, have, we have a couple of people with clipboards who are going to wander around outside to get your name and your contact information for a specific, an area that specifically calls out to you, whether it's the Bellhaven data collection or whether it's um, the rain, uh, the rainforest, the rain gardens, um, or whether it's working with the pilot program of 420 families. There are things, I think I counted about four specific areas that people in the, sitting in this room could say, could call you tomorrow and say, sign me up for this. Where do I go? Tell me where to report. Yes, there are about four. So just a couple questions before we say thank you and retire to um, outside. Uh, questions, anybody? Yes, Amy, please. We're also still trying to get the air monitors. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> also trying to get the air monitors for our area. You'll notice that Bellhaven didn't have any. <laughs> Um, we only, the, uh, I heard recently that they were providing data for us from Redwood City. And that's where the closest one was. And so we've, that means we never had one, right? We never had an air monitor system for Bellhaven. So it's those kind of things that we need to, if we're going to deal with climate change, we're, if we're going to deal with all of this, we need to have, uh, the equipment and the, the different ways of reporting out, um, uh, the quality of the air, you know, just all these different things. The, there are, these congregations also have anti-racism committees, so I'm, I'm so struck by the, um, the synergy, uh, the connection. I mean, Violet talks about this so eloquently, so I, I would love to see us organized to, to help you. Other questions? Other questions? Juanita, it, it sounded also like maybe some designs, uh, design process about what the data collection would be here at the design stage of the yeah. survey. Yeah, so the people who might like doing those kinds of things. What, any other questions? I mean, there's a lot to take in. I know there's a lot to take in. Make sure you put your name on the clipboard if you wanna work on one of these projects. This is, this is hands-on, not to denigrate or certainly not to put down educational purposes. I was struck by 
what you had to say when you asked people to raise their hands if they knew about how to protect themselves. So education, of course, is important. And a lot of us have been doing that for the past year or past six, eight, nine months. And now many of us are ready to sign up and come and, like I said, report for duty and do make a difference. If you can use us, we would like to be involved. So I'm going to thank you again. Thank, where's Pastor Danielle? Okay, so thank her and, and Pastor Kevin and Spark and Eights. Do I see Rabbi, Rabbi Chaim back there? Thank you very much for having us as your guests and Beth Am, the Kronics and all the Beth Amers and the Colomet people too and the Spark people. Thank you very much and thank you. So please come outside. <laughs>